Hey, what's going on, everybody? Stu Blackwell here with another episode of the Warrior Legacy Podcast. I'm excited about today's episode because what we're going to be doing is we're going to be moving into the conclusion of this little mini-series that we've been doing, talking about American perception of the armed forces, all right? Now, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, uh, things that we've seen in the media, things that we've seen from recruiting ads, and how that doesn't really line up with reality based off of my experience in the global war on terror as an infantryman and experiences um, from, you know, the other men that I served with and that I fought alongside with, okay? So today, we're going to be wrapping it up in a nice, neat little package, and it's going to be rad. Um, So get your torches and pitchforks ready, everybody. There's going to be a lot of that today, and without further ado, let's roll the ad so that we can get into it. All right, everybody, so with the ad out of the way, okay, what we're going to do is in this sort of conclusion type episode is we're going to do a little brief recap just to catch everybody up that's just joining us here, Um, and then we're going to move into where that leaves us on the back end and how I think that we should be remembered, okay? It's a very important subject to me, all right? Now, so... It's important to note as we move forward here that something, if you know, you look at our history and stuff like that, uh, we can kind of see that American interest in the armed forces kind of ebbs and flows with conflict, right? Now, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily, um, you know, all good or all bad. It just means that it's not really on the radar until it's needed, you know, and the evidence of that, like I said, is in our history, okay? Uh, For instance, you know, a lot of people don't realize that it was proposed by all the other services that the U.S. Marine Corps be disbanded after World War II. They thought that it wasn't necessary. Now, our battlefield performance is really what kept us alive there, um, along with a few good men that stuck up for us. But if you look a little bit further, uh, you know, after both of the World Wars and really after Korea as well, after Vietnam, so on and so forth, okay, there's always major financial and personnel cuts after every single war, all right? And you don't really have to dig too deep in order to find that evidence, okay? So naturally, let's take that and let's move it forward into uh, the global war on terror. So interest skyrocketed, obviously, after 9-11 because, well, guess what? The military was now relevant again. We needed it to go and do what it was intended to do. And in the opening phases of that, as we discussed in previous episodes, the quote-unquote robot archetype, or that vision of, you know, the service member that observes incident willing obedience to all orders, not very imaginative, that goes by the book and just charges the hill without any creativity or critical thinking was kind of the dominant archetype, all right? Now, the engine and the vehicle uh, behind all of this was really, you know, Hollywood recruiting campaigns, and this is what our government and you know, narrative influencers such as the media wanted us to think, all right? Um, Now, as the war kind of went on, um, the protector kind of rotated to the forefront. You know, we were in Iraq and we were in Afghanistan at the same time, and people were kind of starting to wonder, what are we still doing over here, okay? Especially after Saddam was captured and, you know, his, his regime had been toppled, and the war kind of morphed into the counterinsurgency that is what most people remember. Now, presenting 
service members as protectors of the helpless and the weak, uh, it served a few purposes here, okay? So one, it, it made things sting just a little bit less for whoever was actually paying attention to the war, okay? Which, you know, it's not really a secret that public interest kind of degraded as time went on, all right? And the other thing that it really did was it kind of set the stage for the next archetype to move into you know, the limelight, which was the nation builder, all right? And it was a very smooth transition, okay? Um, he just kind of slid his way up front, um, and it normalized this view of us being liberators to spread democracy, all right? Um, which, you know, for many of us on the ground, it, it seemed that the longer that the war went on, the more that these, you know... Uh, the media and politicians and people that wanted to change this narrative and push this narrative, they wanted us to be one of these three, okay? Either a robot that just followed orders, a protector that was there to just defend the helpless and the weak, or the nation builder that was there to advance democracy, which would, in turn, further their interests, okay? Um, and the nation builder especially because it's much more profitable for politicians uh, and uh, the military industrial complex and so on and so forth. All right. Um, if uh, <laughs> I guess really, if I had to, to bring in another example of what this could be like, all right, you could, you could kind of draw the superhero uh, connection here with Captain America. Okay. Like think about it. All right. So Steve Rogers, okay. A, a poor kid from Brooklyn in world war two as you know, made famous by the most recent Marvel movies. He re wants really bad to go fight the Nazis in World War II, okay? And he's physically incapable of doing so. So he gets approached by a scientist and gives him a super soldier serum that turns him into just a paragon physical specimen, all right? This dude is jacked. He's ripped. He's able to go overseas and do everything that he wants to do to serve his country, all right? He follows orders. He protects the weak and he promotes freedom the world over. Okay. Now, that doesn't really work. Okay. And it's been a common association, I guess you could say, at least from my perspective, that that's kind of how we all are. And that's why we did the things that we did. That's why we fought in the wars that we fought. But from my experience on the ground, nothing could be further from the truth. Okay. And if you look, at evidence why these three models don't work. I mean, look no further than the recruiting crisis that we're in right now, which is ironic because that was one of the key players in trying to push these narratives. And it's meant to attract people based on these arch archetypes. But what the media and recruiting and uh, Hollywood didn't really take into account was people see these representations and they associate them with the most recent historical events, you know, so for example, after World War II, you know, we were just coming off a complete and total victory, a very costly one, okay, but one where it was decisive, okay, both Germany and um, Japan had surrendered, it, there was no question at all who had won that war, okay, now, if you flash forward to today, most people remember the images of Afghan civilians hanging off of airplanes as they take off from Hamid Karzai International Airport and the disastrous end to the Afghan campaign, 
Okay, so what that tells me is that people are waking up to the fact that our politicians calling the shots have no fucking clue what they're doing. All right. Uh, my question is, why are we still listening to these people? And if you doubt really that these, you know, these views, these archetypes and, you know, the, these presentations don't really exist, then I challenge you to keep in mind that they may not hold a place in your view of the American service member, but they clearly do for others and they have for some time. All right. So ask yourself this, right? Does the phrase, thank you for your service, sound cliche? That's because it is. Okay. Uh, so this, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I stumbled on a podcast called Choices Not Chances. All right. Uh, and <laughs> it's, uh, it was really cool to me because other, other Marines that served in you know, some, some units that fought in March at the same place that I did started this thing up. And uh, they've got a lot of really rad content out there. They were interviewing uh, one of my old company commanders who at the time was uh, their platoon commander in Afghanistan. And they were talking about, you know, some of the similar things that we're talking about right now about perception and things like that. And they mentioned um, things don't get cliche by themselves. All right. So what what that means is people have to believe or at least acknowledge anything before it can become stale. All right. Now for our part, okay. We may not have wanted to nation build and protect. Okay. But some of us did because, well, we pledged to follow those orders as men when we took our oath of enlistment. Okay. Now it seems like I've spent a lot of time, especially over the last couple of episodes, just kind of taking a giant shit on protection and nation building and anything that isn't direct combat, essentially, okay? Don't get it twisted, all right? Nothing that I'm saying right now means that we should ignore those aspects of the war or act like they didn't happen or even act like they're, they're not good or right or noble. That's not the point, Okay. But what is the point is that we damn sure should not let those overshadow the good that came from direct combat, which is very difficult when you actually think about what goes on in direct combat, all right? But how many terrorists were killed? How many years did we push back the next 9-11? And how many of us came out better men that can now raise better children than we would have absent this experience. And this brings to mind a somewhat of a unique experience, I think, um, that, that's kind of stuck with me over the years from, from my time in Afghanistan. Um, you know, so for those of you guys that, that are just joining us here, um, the year is 2010. We're in a place called Marja, Afghanistan. And um, the, the deployment for the first, I want to say about like, yeah, five months or so was pretty kinetic. Um, and, uh, you know, about halfway through we switch AOs and we move back, uh, to a more Northern position and we kind of have to relearn everything. Okay. Well, when that happens, what we typically do is we take the unit that's been there and been patrolling. Um, and we partner with them. We go out on a few patrols together so they can kind of show us the hot spots, you know, point out a, a few of the key players and things of that nature. All right. Just sort of like a handoff, a little bit of left seat, right seat is what we call it. Kind of like you're driving down the road, getting ready to take the wheel. So 
we're out on patrol one day, okay? And we're pushing up north close to a particular village called Miakel. And I've spoken about this in some of the previous episodes. I'd highly recommend that you guys go back and watch some of those just for a little bit more context, all right? And, you know, a little bit more uh, if combat stories are something that you're kind of into. But we'll make this one brief. So we're pushing up towards this village and uh, we take contact, all right, which is, you know, visual and uh, visual contact of the enemy and positive enemy fire coming from the north northeast or so a few hundred meters away all right so you know we've been there for a few months now we know what to do guys are taking cover they're returning fire and we've got this one cat from third platoon all right his name is bradley and he was one of the first ones to uh to get eyes on the enemy and start returning fire so most of us ducked down into a nearby wadi, which is just like a long, you know, irrigation ditch, okay? And he is lobbing uh, 40 millimeter 203 grenades at the enemy. And I could hear over the incoming and outgoing fire this, this deep, fulfilling expression of happiness that came from this man's very core, all right? And there was an element of genuine joy to it that I didn't expect as we rushed past in the wadi. And, you know, I thought to myself, I was like, man, like, like that's a war cry, <laughs> right? Like the look on this man's face, the, the triumph in his demeanor as he let out that intensity that was built up inside, it, it kind of baffled me in passing. Um, but I reflect back on my time overall with this unique tribe. And, and I remember the men that animated it, that made it so very special because of the impact that they had. You know, I, I think about Zach, you know, my squad leader that was killed in Afghanistan, a man that had an extraordinary impact on all of us that left a permanent mark on our character because he introduced so many different things to us. He opened new worlds as our leaders. You know, he embodied adaptability and proficiency. His example was second to none. And I think about men like him, and it's very clear to me that we are not robots. I think about Bradley, you know, the, the 203 wielding piece of iron that reveled in this truest form of competition, not from bloodlust or some sort of you know, mental imbalance, but because that competition between us and the enemy, it unlocks something deep inside that can never be deleted. Yes, we can protect, and yes, we can play a small role in nation building, but that's not who we are or how we should be remembered, I think. Now, you may be asking, especially if this, you know, kind of pisses you off a little bit. Well, okay, Stu, then who are you? You know, you spent all this time, you know, taking a massive dump on, you know, all the pretty sides of th these last couple of conflicts. You know, well, who do you think you guys really are? And how do you think you should be remembered? You know, what are you really trying to get at? Well, the answer to that question uh, for me is, is actually quite simple. You know, we were searching for something more out of life. We wanted adventure. We wanted challenge and growth. And simply because it's different. It's a different way of life. Many of us just wanted that unique experience 
of going to war. And we're not ashamed of it or broken because of it. Sure, the alternative may have been more comfort at college or, you know, a better paying job. But we would have had to wonder for the rest of our lives, what if I had gone to war? That's an awfully long time to carry something around. You see, for us, you know, uniforms and haircuts and and the typical military associations mean something very different, right? Instead of being tied to, you know, mental images of instant and willing obedience to all orders and protection or spreading democracy, they represent the practices that set us apart from everyone else. They represent, you know, the weapons proficiency, the physical conditioning, the mental toughness, and the development required to obtain them. You know, if we look back into our history, we can actually see a little bit more evidence of this. Uh, If you read Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs, he notes specifically that there are two types of men that go to war, all right? Um, The first is the quintessential military man, the man that could literally not be successful in any other type of environment or job outside of the military. And the second are men that join specifically to go to war. From my experience, most of us fall into the latter category. Now, that's not to put down patriotism at all. Okay, patriotism was certainly a factor for many of us, and me included, in the beginning. Um, But more so than that, many of us simply joined for the challenge because we craved more out of life. We wanted to know if we possessed that same greatness as the best warriors in history. Men like Alexander the Great and Hannibal Barca and Zach Walters. The fact is the world will only produce men of that caliber once or twice per generation at best. And many of us felt that we owed it to ourselves to find out if we could measure up. And the majority of us didn't. And we found that out fairly quickly that that was the case. But we did our duty because we gave our word as men when we signed the contract that we would. We committed when we could have stayed home or done something else. And that's not to put down other people that didn't. It's not for everybody. But again, we would have had to deal with that nagging question for the rest of our life, and that is unacceptable. But regardless of how the journey ended for each man, we came out having critical knowledge of ourselves, of what we are truly capable of. Knowledge that we would never have had otherwise, and that most will never find. That challenge gave us the opportunity to build ourselves, to forge ourselves, oftentimes through sheer force of will and great exertion into someone better. Now, (laughs) if you see some vets now, the sad truth is that many may not look like much on the outside, which is something that we as the veteran community need to fix. But the internal development is something that can only be found in a culture and an environment such as this. It accelerates the developmental process by necessity because of the consequences for failure and because of the mentorship and guidance of a few solid men. It puts us at more critical crossroads in our lives, many of which 
have no favorable immediate outcome. Only small steps ahead towards something better that is very, very, very far away. Infantrymen must be made through Herculean exertion, consistent extreme hardship, temporary defeat, painful internal examination, and the commitment to improve upon it. And the pursuit of lethality, one of the infantry values, requires development of qualities like discipline and proficiency and toughness. And a man who relentlessly strives for perfection in this arena will become better. The manifestation of these qualities in action and conduct, that's our example, is what establishes our reputation within the community. And that it forms bonds with men, frozen in the hardships that cemented them, that can last a lifetime. And it cannot be erased. It can be covered up. Oh yeah. And it can be suppressed. It can be suppressed by alcohol. It can be suppressed by victimhood. By a lot of things. But it can never be undone. It's always there. Savages dedicate their lives to this development every day. Through consistent, intentional action. That's what commitment is. And for our part of history, we were the men in the arena. And we will never have to wonder, what if? What if I had gone to war? But the journey shouldn't stop after we leave the service. It should just move on to a new chapter. And I believe that this, above all else, is our legacy to the world. It's that example of development and the map for everyone else to follow. And the question is, will we cement that legacy? Or will we fall prey to the dangerous invisible war that is always waged in the aftermath of fighting abroad? Now let's clarify what that war is, all right? And if we look at our predecessors from Vietnam, we see a war that our country didn't understand and no longer sees as relevant, which is sad. But it's true. We see the damage that was caused to those men by the way that they were treated. You know, many of them you know, were crowded by mobs when they came home to be called baby killer and rapist. They were spit on and associated with horrific events like the Malay Massacre. Instead of honored for their battlefield performance against one of the most cunning and ruthless enemies that we've ever faced as a country. The difference in what they had to deal with coming home and how we were treated is as clear as night and day. We've been honored and respected by all but a small part of the entire population. And none of this should be taken as, as me being ungrateful or sounding condescending. Okay? Don't take it that way. But there is something just as dangerous below the surface. All right? Our country is more aware than it ever has been of PTSD and mental health. And that's not a bad thing. And there's some that that herald our service with, with a hint of sympathy and pity because it's difficult for most people to imagine that anyone can train for and go to war and return without PTSD, you know, and, and that was kind of subtle in the beginning, but I think it's become such a common association that it's paved the way for victimhood. 
And victimhood, make no mistake about it, kills more slowly but much more effectively than any weapon of war. That mentality tells us, tells veterans, that it's okay to take advantage of disability payments, to live off our laurels from the past, and to dwell in our time in uniform. It tells us that we should expect to jump the line of success and be given jobs or money or respect because of what we did instead of what we have earned since. And that is something that I am much more familiar with than I want to remember. If you recall from episode six, I fell into that trap and it nearly killed my spirit. It definitely damaged my family. I am the farthest thing from perfect than one can get. And I struggle every single day with pushing the needle just one inch further towards being the best version of me that I can be. And a lot of times I fall short. But (laughs) then I remember that I asked for this. I chose to develop just like I chose to fight. So point blank, we volunteered. There was no draft. Nobody was compelled to fight against their will. And only a small percentage of service members did fight. Most were in support roles, which shouldn't diminish their contribution and their commitment at all. But it's just a reality of the wars that we fought in in Iraq and Afghanistan. But we have an obligation, a responsibility to be the generation of Americans that leads our country to a better place, back to the values that it was founded on. And that can only be done by maximizing our impact in our communities. The responsibility is ours, not only to claim this legacy that we fought for and earned in the trials of combat, but to exemplify it. So if you're a combat veteran, follow the example being set. Step up to the plate. Tell your story and live your best life.